the, the narrative arc is um, that there's a beginning, a middle, and end of, of his story of history. And that a lot of our, um, what we're trying to do in our time here as individuals is to um, find our place in history. And so um, seeing God unpacking things and connecting things and bringing people together is, is um, uh, I, I, I find a lot of joy in that. Welcome to a One Life podcast. One Life, as you may or may not know, is a grassroots learning collective made up of equippers serving classes BC, Northwest, and Southeast in the Christian Reformed Church. By providing events and resources centered around the five foundational callings of the church, worship, faith formation, servant leadership, global mission, justice, and mercy. The calling we're looking at this week is the calling of faith formation. And this calling is curated by Liz Tolkamp, who serves as the CRCNA faith formation catalyzer for both BC Northwest and BC Southeast. She's also served for the past 20 years as the children and family pastor at Willoughby Church in Langley, encouraging and equipping local churches in their calling to shape the intentional lifelong faith formation is at the core of Liz's work as the BC Faith Formation Regional Catalyzer. Liz loves to develop relationships and form partners with ministry leaders, pastors, and churches so that they can fulfill the call to nurture faith through all ages and all stages of life within their local contexts. Curating the faith formation stream for One Life is a way to help churches develop and grow into wholehearted, vibrant, and life-transforming communities of faith. Liz says when she thinks of faith or spiritual formation, she is often drawn to this quote by Robert Mulholland Jr. from his book, Invitation to a Journey. Mulholland says this, The process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others is that process or journey of being Christ-like. We become either agents of God's healing and liberating grace or carriers of the sickness of the world. Liz says, I'm inspired when I encounter people who through the arc of their life are people who live intentionally and gracefully as agents of God's healing and grace. And Sonia is one of those persons. The story of her life and her life's work is one that Liz believes has continued to be illuminated by that grand story of God's love and God's grace. And so let's listen to what Sonia has to say about faith formation now. So, Sonia, welcome to another episode of A One Life Podcast. So our listening audience can know uh, Sonia is a nurse, a historian, and a Christian. She's published five books in her time, um, most recently one in the past year. And Sonia Grimma, I'm just so pleased to have you and welcome you to A One Life Podcast. Thanks, Eric. I've been looking forward to this. Good. I, I, I very much look forward to it as well. Um, so we actually start every episode of the podcast with asking our, our guests about their story. And one of the reasons we do that is because we have this belief um, that our stories are illuminated, that great gospel story of the reconciliation of the whole world in Jesus Christ. And oftentimes on this podcast, uh, we interview people whose whole life in some way um, is illuminated by and illuminates that big gospel story. But um, at any rate, that's where we want to start. And, and I, would, I would like to start there with you as well. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about your story as it pertains to our calling for this month, which is the calling of faith formation. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, who formed your faith, uh, parents, grandparents, uh, church members, and, uh, and, and how those experiences formed you. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Eric. Well, yeah, you know, I, I grew up as uh, a, a lot of uh, the people that I hung out with did as a child of Dutch immigrants. I grew up in, in Alberta. My 
my mom's family immigrated when she was uh, 11 years old after the war. Uh, my dad's family immigrated a few years after that when he was 22. They met in Red Deer, Alberta. That's where I was born and uh, grew up in Calgary, grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, which at that time our church was really uh, kids who were like me with immigrant parents. We went to school together. We, we uh, hung out uh, on, on weekends together. We went to church together. And because my mom came from a very large family of uh, 13 kids, uh, our family life was also very much uh, our extended family life. My cousins went to Christian schools and, and, uh, and, and Christian Reformed churches too. So the, the idea of uh, growing up in the faith was, uh, that was very real because uh, it was at school, home and church, all of these together were, were connected. And I think Already as a young kid, I was asking the big questions. My, my grandma, my dad's um, uh, stepmom, I remember her saying to me that you, you ask a lot of why questions. I kept, kept, would keep going. To, if you, I, I realized that if you keep asking a why question, eventually the answer is God. Why is the sky blue? Why is it, what, whatever, the, eventually it, it would come to that, which is kind of sort of this nine-year-old realization that I had. So, um, but I did have friends that who were outside of the Christian Reformed Church who, who were in, uh, in our school, one in particular, her name was Kathy and uh, she was Baptist. Um, her dad had passed away when she was in grade four. We, we, um, we are still friends to this day. Uh, but she introduced me to uh, sort of outside of, of the, the Dutch Christian Reformed uh, uh, grounding that I had where I would attend church with her. Baptist Church. She went on to uh, uh, go to a boarding school, Port High School in Saskatchewan. I visited her when she was in grade 10 and uh, decided I'd love to go there too. So the next year I packed my bags and my parents were, were somehow okay with me going off to, uh, to a boarding school that was in the middle of the prairies that was started by uh, it was, uh, Mennonite Brethren School, and uh, was there for two years, really helped me to understand, sort of ex extend my understanding of, of who God is and what a personal faith looks like. That was where I was first moved from being exposed to faith as sort of a family thing and a, and, and a, um, it really a, a, a part of my everyday life, having to family devotions around the dinner table, for example, to this idea of, of being able to see people, um, uh, see it, what it meant to be having personal devotions and, and, and personal prayer time, personal quiet time. I was introduced to those ideas as a high school student. And it was there as a 15-year-old uh, that I, there was a uh, opportunity to respond to, to the question uh, that I, uh, were, are you prepared to go anywhere, do anything at any time for Christ? So as a 15, 16 year old, I thought, I responded with a yes to that thought. Well, if you're gonna do that, the best, what that must mean is being a missionary. And if you're gonna be a missionary, then you probably need some kind of career that's gonna help you with that. And, and probably the place you're gonna go is Africa and probably the thing you're gonna wanna do there is nursing. <laughs> so I went to, uh, that's how I got into uh, nursing and uh, started my nursing career from there. Wow, man, that is, that is, a, that is really neat. I, I didn't know that, because that, um, I, I knew you. Um, I actually, I, I'm a Trinity, Trinity grad. And so I knew you as the, at that time as the head of the nursing department, but I had no idea that it's a missional uh, calling that actually was the seed of that nursing um, career path which is pretty cool. And uh, I wonder if that will, will come up again. Are there any particular practices or habits that were instilled in you as a child or teenager that you still practice today? Hmm. Well, I mean, it sounds obvious, but going to church on Sundays, well, hmm. now with COVID, so what, that looks a little bit differently now. But I, but I think that that is important, that uh, Sunday was, was set aside uh, as Sabbath, for worship, for fellowship, for rest and restoration. That would be something that very much was from my childhood that I uh, see in a, in a very central uh, to my, the rhythms of my spiritual practices. 
That's a really good one. And, um, and a, a key to faith formation. And I appreciate that you mentioned that in these COVID times, that, that going to church on Sunday value is, is maybe not as obvious as it once was and not as easy to obtain necessarily as it used to be. Um, ha- have you seen benefits or fruit of this uh, pr- practice of Sabbath keeping? Mm, well, what, what I, you know, students will ask me sometimes when I have to speak in, in front of uh, incoming students or prospective students, they'll say, how, how do I be successful in university? And I'll say, this is going to be a strange thing to hear, uh, but take a Sabbath break. Uh, when I was, um, when I was in this high school at Karenport High School, I had a grade uh, 11 teacher, uh, chemistry teacher, who, Mr. Turner, <laughs> who said in preparation for university, one of the most important things that you, two, two important things. One is, is, is do not stay up late the night before an exam, number one. Number two is, is uh, keep the Sabbath. And uh, that's going to help you to become a better student and, and be successful. And so, so I practice that uh, in a practical way as a nursing student with, um, you know, I was, I'd be taking Sundays off and my colleagues would still be classmates who would be studying seven days a week. And at first I thought that I was missing out on, on being able to get ahead on, on or at least keep up with studies. And over time, it, it just became really obvious that I was able to do everything I needed to do um, study-wise in, the, in six days and still have that, that day of, of ref- refreshment and, and, and Sabbath. Um, in addition to Sabbath itself, has helped me keep a, a healthy balance and helped me to get through school myself and helps, helps me to get through the pressures of uh, day-to-day work still. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you mentioned already in your story and in, in what you've shared a couple times, grandparents. Mm-hmm. And um, I just wanted to ask you specifically about, um, I've heard that your grandparents are honored in the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem as righteous Gentiles, that's their title. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what that means, a bit about what their story is, and then what kind of um, faith formation lessons you've learned from from them? Yeah, yeah, we, I, that thanks. So it's, it's Hendrik and Elizabeth Visser uh, uh, were, that's my, my dad's parents. So my dad was uh, brought up in, in Zeist in the Netherlands and his dad was a um, small appliance uh, fixer, a little bit like a Corrie Ten Boom story in the sense that they, in, their, in their house, they had at the front of the house was the shop and then they had the, the, the house behind and, and uh, stairs upstairs. And, and my grandfather worked for the resistance well, both grandparents really, but you know, my grandfather more, more directly going out um, uh, when the Germans occupied Holland in the, during the Second World War. He kind of unintentionally, while he was also uh, hiding resistance workers, um, I think he had hid people, they hid, uh, had a hiding spot in their house for about uh, 20 people over the course of the war. They also hid a young Jewish woman who was um, in, in her early 20s when she joined them. And, uh, or maybe late teens, I can't remember if she started when she was in her 20s or ended when she was in her 20s, but she lived with them. Hid, hid, they, were, they hid her for four years. My dad was little, his brother was little, sister was little. And so they were, um, uh, they, they had these, uh, this belief that it was the right thing to do. My grandmother then was caring for three little kids while, um, dealing with the uh, the resistance young men who would who would pass their way through my grandfather dug a, a, a um in the basement or dug a basement really my dad remembered um he'd say he said that the kids were sent out one weekend and when they came home they had a sandbox in their backyard and the sandbox is from where they dug out uh, a place where my grandfather could hit hide radios um they hid guns they hid a printing press and um, so in addition to, to hiding resistance workers and, uh, and this Jewish woman named, uh, we, we called her Tanta Ali after, um, she survived the war. Her, um, her father survived the war. Um, her mother and her sister perished. And it was Ellie then who, um, who put my parents, my grandparents name in as, uh, as righteous Gentiles honored in the Holocaust Museum for their resistance work during the war and particularly hiding and saving her life. Uh, my grandmother died a few years after the war. She had breast cancer during the war. She died after the war. Um, and when my dad was, uh, was 16, uh, 
And so this, and I got to visit the, uh, the Yad Vashem in Israel a, a number of years ago, uh, got to, uh, you know, experience up close what it, what it meant and means in a very different way than as a childhood story. And, and I was asked when I was there, I, I, I went through the museum with a, with a group of actually university administrators and, and business people and politicians as it was a number of years ago. And uh, they were among us were um, Jewish, Muslim and Christians. I think there were about 16, 17 of us. And after we went through the Holocaust Museum, I didn't realize this was going to happen, but the, the leader of the group knew about my grandparents and she brought us in front of a, um, a, a place where their names are carved into a stone where they're honored. And uh, so a little overwhelming um, to say the least, but she asked me in front of everyone, she said, uh, I, I need to ask you, would, you know, why do you think your grandparents did this? And it was so dangerous, obviously, they would have lost their lives. Um, they put their lives and the lives of their children at risk. Um, why do you think they did this? And I said, well, they, I, I, on, from what I understand, they saw it as their, really as their Christian duty. They, they actually couldn't not do it. The, they, they, uh, the, the importance of, of human dignity, of, of protection, of, of, of support, it, 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 I, I don't know that it would occur to them to do other than that, as hard as it was. Uh, and then she asked me, do you think that you would do that? And I said, I, 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 who, who would know? But I said, I believe I would. I believe I would only because I know that they did. Not because you're making a decision based on whether I think I can or I want to, or if there's other, if I can get out of this somehow. Um, but that sense from my parents, my grandparents have, and, and my parents are this way, both both my parents, um, you know, my, my siblings, the, the, the church that I was brought up in, the people that I, um, you know, I uh, belong to a Christian Reformed Church still. My husband, I think that um, my sense is that I know a lot of people who on the basis of their generations of faith, when faced with these uh, terrible kinds of opportunities would say, yes, I, I, I would respond and trying to do the right thing before God. Um, and that's how we need to be living our lives is just trying to do the right thing before God. Wow. Yeah, that's, a, that's an incredible testimony. And, and what a question to be asked when you're put on the spot <laughs> in front of a group. Do you think you would? And to try to answer that honestly. And the other thing that jumps out at me is, um, the importance of our parents and the people who've gone before us in this faith formation work, yeah. um, just how key that is. Cause that was right in your testimony. You said, I think I could do it because I know they did it. Okay. So this value and this faith gets passed from generation to generation. And I, I think that's a really beautiful thing. Um, what do you think it is about the Christian faith that you mentioned duty. Um, there's a Christian duty in it. Why? Why? Why is that? To use your question, why? Why is that a Christian duty? I, I mean, the, the the Sunday school answer, but I guess that's what we're talking about too, right? Because Sunday school mm -hmm. makes this as well. The Sunday mm -hmm. school is because Christ did it for us. Um, mm -hmm. That that uh, He was willing to suffer and die for our sins. It's a it's it's a Sunday school answer, but it's pretty profound. <laughs> pretty profound. Absolutely. I, I think of it as I, I like to use the word um, responsibility that, that a, a lot of what we're even in my you know own teaching and, and supporting and mentoring uh, students at the university level now I talk about responsibility and and so it's not just um, you know the word responsibility if you break that into uh, the word response and the word ability and, and then turn it around and say, my responsibility is also my ability to respond. And that part of what I'm trying to do as a professor and teacher or mentor is helping people um, increase their ability to respond. So be res listen for opportunities where God is calling you in the moment to be doing something for the person right in front of you or, or, or to a, you know, a bigger idea, a bigger ideal. Uh, but work on being uh, both being learning how to be sensitive and attentive to 
something that you need to respond to and then increase your skills and ability to be able to respond when, when the opportunity arises. So the responsibility or ability to respond. Wow. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's, you're right, that Sunday school answer is so profound. It just mm -hmm. hit me again, <laughs> the simplicity and the profundity at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that. Um, let's, let's touch back in with your story then. Uh, so early in your, your healthcare career, following this, this missional call to nursing, um, you worked as an outpost nurse in a fly-in Indigenous community. Um, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that experience um, and how that, that experience continues to form faith in you and, uh, and, and um, yeah, form your work that you do now? Yeah, well, you know, so I said that I went into nursing with some idea that I would end up as a missionary in Africa. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't know any missionaries in Africa, but um, I, what I ended up doing instead was uh, moving out to the coast and working um, as a, you know, in a hospital, as you kind of think about with nursing. And it was that I was in a cafeteria with, um, with another nurse. Uh, and she told me that she was going to become an outpost nurse. I hadn't really thought about that myself I told her that I wanted to go to Africa and she said well but you know if you if you become an outpost nurse um you know the, the needs are just as great there's a lot of similar reasons to be doing outpost nursing this is 30 years ago now um as as to be working overseas and uh you can work in your first language uh in 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 uh, up north in Canada and you might be able to uh do it for a salary that then you can save up money and send yourself to Africa. Like, so you could actually be a way to do both. So I did, I, I, I worked in, um, in the, on, on the North coast, uh, in a flying community for about a year and a half in the single nurse station. It was, it, that was, uh, that did change the direction of my life because I, uh, growing up in a sort of an enclave of, 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 uh, Dutch Christian reform, pretty Western people, um, living in this in this community, just being exposed to um, uh, indigenous culture, citizenship culture, being able to form these uh, relationships, and uh, made me it raised a lot of questions for me. And um, it meant that you know I did eventually go to Africa. Went to Uganda. Was part of a uh, mass immunization team after the war there. Went back a few years later with my husband, and we did some. Uh, where he was working on, he's a surgeon and he was doing um, some uh, surgery related to uh, people who had polio. Uh, and, and that was in, you know, that was impactful as well, but probably not as much as, as working in an indigenous community because at that time as an outpost nurse, I was hearing what we are all now hearing much more of. Um, it's where I heard about residential schools. I had no idea. It's where I heard about, um, you know, some of the, 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 the tearing apart of culture and the tearing apart of families that was really having a, um, a, a, a profound, real daily impact. And, uh, and I saw that in the, in the healthcare needs of the people that I was trying to serve. So here we are, fast forward, you know, 30 years later and, um, and the, the horrible discovery of a presidential school that we've been hearing through the Truth and Reconciliation um, uh, the whole process over the last number of years, this, this is what Indigenous people have been, uh, have been saying. And this was the first time that there was um, the, uh, the evidence in the way that caught the attention of the world, I guess you would say, in, in Kamloops. Um, it brings, uh, uh, it just brings to the foreground again, the significance and importance as people who live in Canada, who live in this land, who live in um, uh, ancestral unceded territory of, of various First Nations, of the uh, how serious we need to take this call uh, to, of, of reconciliation, of, of um, uh, walking together in a good way, which is what our University Siam uh, keeps reminding us. Uh, we that's a that's a collective calling. We don't know how to do that well, but I'm I'm uh, pretty um, pretty aware of the um, of, of the reality of of what Indigenous peoples have been trying to bring uh, settlers to understand for a very long time. Wow, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, 
it strikes me as you're talking this this why question uh, that really stuck with me when you mentioned that early on and how the why question always brings us to God but I think it can also get us into some pretty hot water too can't it you you move yourself into an indigenous community and you start asking why and what a can of worms that opens in learning about Canadian history and Canadian um yeah just uh, uh, injustice uh, yeah. writ large, you know? Um, and, and so, I, but I wonder about the convergence of those two things. I wonder about how, where those two things meet, the questions and the experiences that lead to um, maybe disillusionment um, with our systems, with our history, um, yeah. but then they also lead us to God, those same questions, I, I would say, and I think you would say the same. So, and, and so where do you find the convergence of those two things with faith formation and, uh, and injustice? Hmm. Uh, well, well, maybe in, in, in between those two things, I'll, I'll say that, uh, you know, it was um, missionaries who were the ones who were perpetuating the injustices. And uh, in, in these Indigenous communities, they, these were uh, churches who, who really were um, glad not to have to compete against each other for um, being able to have a, 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 a captive audience literally to to bring the gospel to uh, at the same time so that that's you know missionary history through one lens but I also study missionary history in China um, and uh, having gone to China with missionary kids who were um, you know that's a whole other that's a rabbit trail this whole other story but um, that was actually really helpful to be, you know, I've been going to China for 20 years now, um, it, all related to studying Canadian missionaries, Canadian missionaries and nurses and doctors who built hospitals there and who were um, basically uh, left, well, did leave. They all left by 1951 after the communist government came to power and um, uh, expelled uh, foreigners and missionaries from China. Uh, so I, I've also learned to hear in, in both cases to, to learn to hear from those who were impacted uh, how they're how they interpret missionaries coming. And in the case of the village where where I used to live, then I remember asking the um, the lay priest, Anglican priest there, who was indigenous, who was from the community, to say how how do you make sense of this? Yeah. And and he said, you know. It was part of our oral history. It was part of our tradition. Um, we believed and understood that at some time um, uh, a, a person would come, or people would come. He, he described as white people. Um, he, he had a really beautiful story about um, how he they understood um, how this would happen, and 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 it happened the way that way in in uh, this community. He said, "I." love that the missionaries or, or, or Western people or white people, I, I love that they, they brought Jesus to us. Uh, the mistake was that they got Jesus mixed up with being Western. We needed Jesus, but we didn't need English and we didn't need Western clothes and we didn't need, we, you know, could, could, could go on for a long time about mm -hmm. all of these um uh, so it was a misunderstanding mm -hmm. of, of what it meant to bring Jesus to, to people. Um, so that this is what, what he taught me. And then uh, in, in China, really what I, what I hear, what people have told me there that reflect on the same stories as we learn together about the history of our, our of China and Chinese and Canadian relationships is, um, you know, there, there were a lot of things that were negative during the colonial period as well, but also a real appreciation of the motivation of a Christian motivation for people to come to be serving, uh, to come to be, you know, um, uh, bringing humanitarian re relief, as it were, um, coming to care for the sick. Um, the, the, there was the motivation that was connected to politics for sure but on an individual level, a motivation to be serving Christ by serving others. And, and so to, to, to pull that apart, to say in all of that though, how do we learn? How can we learn both from the mistakes and from, from uh, what, what had positive impact? Um, what does that mean for us today? 
how, how, did, how that should that should change how we approach things today as as Christians trying to um, be salt and light, trying to be um, reflecting God, um, reflecting God's love. We, and we do such a terrible job, uh, but I remain hopeful that uh, that God is still working in us regardless. He's revealing himself to others regardless. He's revealing himself through us regardless. Oh, so I really hope. Hmm. Oh, yeah. What a beautiful mix of hope and trouble. Um, because it's a, you're right, it's a very troubled history. Um, and yet, the hope is Christ. Um, and I'm also another thing that speaks hope to me is, is um, your questions to Indigenous leaders. Uh, how, how much we can, we settlers, Western uh, Christians, have to learn by asking those questions and, um, and how, how, yeah, it, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's just beautiful and kind of mind boggling the stakes, <laughs> such extreme tragedy and, and evil and injustice. And then at the same time, such openness uh, to the gospel, to Jesus Christ, um, who uh, your friend rightly seems to understand uh, it is, is not the same. It's not, they're not one and the same, the colonial move and the person of Jesus Christ. These are, these are worth disentangling. And it's pretty amazing to hear from people who have. Um, is that documented somewhere? Um, this, this man's story. I, funny enough, I was just preaching on um, indigenous. Um, well, yeah, try to summarize it quickly. I was actually preaching on the gift of the Magi, but to me, this, this, um, these, this gift of the Magi, people from a totally different culture, what people would say a secular culture or, or, or even a pagan culture, coming to worship at the feet of Jesus through astrology. To me, I could not uh, disentangle that from the good news uh, that you're sharing from indigenous communities who a lot of people would say they're pagan, they're, uh, they're um, yeah, pre-Christian or not, or anti-Christian, or, you know, back in the day, they would say uncivilized and things like that. But, but here are some people who are eager to worship at the feet of Jesus and, and even continue doing it, even though we, we did such a poor job of, uh, of communicating that message. There's still these faithful uh, indigenous priests and leaders. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I just, um, oh, is it, yeah, is that, so is that documented somewhere, this, this story, um, of your, from your indigenous? No, probably just in my diary. <laughs> because I had heard it. I had heard stories, similar stories, that yeah. there was prophecies within indigenous communities of the yeah. coming of the white man. And he's going to bring, even explicit as bring us the son of the creator. And I've been yeah. hearing yeah. these stories oh. and I could not, I Googled it all day long for this sermon and I could not find it anywhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that was, it was him telling me that directly, um, that would have been, you know, 19, probably precise date, like not, I, when I, I went back to visit with my husband, so, you know, the early 1990s, and I, I, I thought it was beautiful, and I captured it, but I, I think, you know, to your point, Eric, where the, the, the ones that should be talking about this, or that have, um, who we should be listening to, are Indigenous Christians, period. You know, in, in, Indigenous Christians are the ones that have the, um, the, um, have worked this out and work this out uh, every day. Um, they are the, the, the leaders in this and uh, the, the call that the, re the request that I hear over and over is, is just listen, just for, 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 for me. For, for us, if I include you and I as both, you know, mm -hmm. sort of Dutch, um, sort of with Dutch heritage, just, just, um, just listen, listen, just hear our stories, hear our wisdom, hear, hear our way forward. Just um, is as again, where I say with our University Siam, she, this is the, her, she uses the language of um, uh, walking together in a good way. Wow. Yeah, that's a, such a good reminder to me and to our listeners. Um, it, it, in, in the little that I've studied of this, it does seem like there are a lot of answers among Indigenous Christianities to our current global crises as well. Um, 
global warming or climate change um, um, to name one, but there's, there's so many just sort of, of these, uh, you know, um, 2008 housing crisis <laughs> crash, you know, it, uh, our, our obsession with interest, all, all, all kinds of different uh, issues of our day that could, could use a lot of wisdom from the indigenous people that never cut themselves off from the land like we did. Um, and so, yeah, I, I appreciate that reminder. Um, and speaking of our current um, somewhat apocalyptic feeling times, oh. um, yeah, let's pick up on your, your uh, uh, on the present now. So you, you have been working at Trinity Western for many years. Um, yeah. And then, and then recently, you were appointed to a a staff position to oversee the the university's response, Trinity Western University's response to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Let's talk a little bit about that and um, and how that bears upon our faith. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, just uh, maybe because I don't think we said this part um, hmm. might be a little confusing. Yeah, uh, I've been I've been at at Trinity now for. 14 years, started off in the, in the School of Nursing as a faculty member, became a Dean of Nursing for about six years, and, and I moved over into senior administration in the, into the provost's office about two and a half years ago, so before COVID. Um, I'm, I'm officially not a nurse anymore, so you did introduce me as a nurse at the beginning, but oh. I, I, no, no, it's, hey, Eric, no, it's fine. I just want to be clear, I don't hold nursing registration anymore, and so you cannot call yourself a registered nurse if you don't have a license anymore. So just put that out there. <laughs> yeah, good point. That's good to know. Um, but I, but a, uh, a, a nurse certainly in the, um, uh, was a registered nurse up until uh, about a year ago. And uh, so COVID came, uh, kind of snuck up on us in a, in a, the way that it did at, at Trinity Western was early because we do have um, students from China and it was after the, the Chinese New Year two years ago that we, we had uh, students returning from China and um, raising the alarm uh, about concerns around this uh, coronavirus. And so we, um, we were trying to sort this out and trying to, to help our, um, our uh, students from China uh, also sort out what what this might mean and uh, this was before this was in January before the first cases came to Canada and before the first cases came to BC just right all in around that time I so I ended up getting um, becoming involved mostly just because we were all looking at each other saying okay how do we <laughs> what do we do where's the pandemic plan and um uh, at a certain point, because I, I was quite involved because of my public health background, um, then in May of that year, then I, the president appointed me as the senior health advisor for COVID. So I did lead us through um, that year with a team, a public health team to try to figure out how to provide education safely in the middle of this ever changing, ever evolving pandemic. So. I uh, was on the front lines with that until last summer where um, I turned over the lead to someone who, another Trinity grad who's um, phenomenal, uh, Taryn Lepp, shout out to her. She uh, has her master's from, in public health from Johns Hopkins. She was just, has been, is continues to be a godsend. So we work very closely together now. She's taken more of the lead role as a public health lead for Trinity. But what that's meant that between, you know, COVID at work and COVID at home and COVID among family and COVID at church, it's kind of all COVID all the time. I know it feels like that for all of us, mm -hmm. uh, but trying to see, oh my goodness, like we, we all know the polarizations that are happening. Um, we, and we see that it doesn't matter if you're if with, within families, within, uh, within institutions, within churches, uh, trying to stay, um, what, what I appreciate within the Christian community, regardless of the uh, tensions and, and the arguments and the frustrations and the, and the hurts and the shaming, and boy, there's so much we can unpack with that. Mm. What, I, what I do see is uh, at least an intention to be trying to figure out how to follow God in this. We're finding different ways. Um, I, I lean, um, probably for obvious reasons as a public health nurse, um, to, towards, I, I have a lot of confidence in, in public health. I have a lot of confidence. I, I, I see uh, Bonnie Henry as a godsend and, uh, and I've followed her advice 
very closely from the beginning. Um, so there's, you know, uh, and, uh, to say I see um, vaccines as a gift from God. I, but, I, but I've always seen medical care as a gift from God as well. I, I, I see cancer care as a gift from God, you know. So to say then our biggest challenge as Christians is might not end up being COVID itself, but how to represent Christ well in um, uh, amongst our very different views on how to um, deal with the pandemic about vaccines, about treatments, about government decisions. Um, uh, there's a lot of anger and frustration around there. However, this is not the first time that our world has been in a pandemic. It's just the first time that most of us remember. We, it's not the first time that, that we've had to deal with really difficult things. It's just that for your generation, Eric, and for mine, unlike my grandparents and my parents' generation, we haven't had to deal with crazy like this. We haven't had to deal with these worldwide conflicts. There's have always been conflicts of, uh, a pockets of conflicts and, and epi um, epidemics and, and, and hard things, uh, suffering um, and, and communicable diseases. That's always been around, but we haven't had the whole world pulled into this in, in the last couple of generations. And so this generation that includes us, that includes you and me and, and people who are older and younger than us who are living at this time, need to also figure out, oh my God, how do we respond to this well? What in this is our responsibility? But our, our parents didn't know how to respond well. Our grandparents didn't know how to respond well to these life-shattering events. That's the reason that you and I are talking right now is because our um, forebears, in the Netherlands went through a war. Um, part of the reason that it's in Canada is because our the Canadian military were the ones that were the ones that liberated Holland mm -hmm. and, 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 and put Canada in the forefront of our of our forebears, our my grandparents' minds. It was Canada also that was one of three choices that our parents could have grandparents could have gone to. South Africa, um, uh, Canada, and uh, now I'm forgetting the third one. But you know, when our parents New Zealand sounds right. Yeah, I'm just New guessing because of Zealand. <laughs> That's where yeah, my, no. my oma is from. Oh, there you go. Just well, you know, I, I, I'm thinking New Zealand might be the third one. And so it's, um, you know, these where we're, we're still living out the story of those catastrophic events that our grandparents as Christians had to respond mm. to. Mm -hmm. I don't know yet how this is going to play out, but um, this is where the anchor will hold. This is where scripture and the faith of our fathers, so to speak, are, you know, and, and uh, keeping in front of us. Um, you know, these, these uh, that we have, the New Testament's been around for 2000 years. Um, it has served the world pretty well. Uh, you know, Old Testament, obviously a lot longer than that. Um, so we, we have the tools that we need. We have the same God. Uh, walking alongside us, we have the same opportunity to to um, uh, ask for His leading and to be tried to do what God's leading us to to do. Um, but it's new for all of us, and it's crazy, and it's exhausting, and and it's it's um, the, this level of uncertainty. I've never lived with it before, but a lot of people have. Just not all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I I find that very moving, the, the testimony of faith and, and the, the way your faith um, anchors you through a storm that has an unknown outcome. That's something I've been thinking about um, in the last little while. Um, how tempting, we, 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 I think we, we all gravitate to expressions of faith that give us certainty of outcome. Um, but I think I heard something in, in what you were describing of how the fact that God is God uh, means he knows and by extension we don't. Or, you know, that's, there's something in what you said that I, I kind of pulled from, pull, pulled that or, 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 or received that from. Like, um, 
he he knows um and how how often the tend the temptation of faith is to to gravitate to a religion or expression of faith that will give us the answer um but of course christianity um doesn't always do that doesn't always give us the the outcome it gives us the god who can walk with us in the amidst the storm right right it's not the answer not the outcome but definitely the certainty mm. tell me more about that tell me more about uh this what certainty means and well, it's unchanging mm. you know so so there's what what was true to the early church two thousand years ago that we're looking to um to the early Christians, to those who who were, who did walk alongside Christ, to those who like Paul, who who um, uh, became an apostle uh, after Christ's death, to those to the early church trying to make sense of, of of what Christ had taught, to those who then tried to live faithfully, um, in it just goes without saying in very difficult times. The world has since then been through plagues and war and famines and and suffering and ongoing that uh that certainty of who god is in that um and and that we can live full meaningful flourishing lives in the middle of a plague in the middle of the war in the middle of a war that's 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 for sure that certainty mm. that's beautiful yeah yeah this uh i i i was kind of a um reluctant pastor reluctant christian reform church member even um but i'm always amazed by how often these chats and and uh, my journey with the christian reform faith it always just comes back to heidelberg catechism question answer one you know yes. what is your only comfort in life and death and that it's that i'm not my own but belong in body and soul life and in death to jesus christ yeah who like you so well said early on his dying for us is the reason we do all of this. And now also I'm hearing, you know, he, he's also the reason why we have certainty amidst such uncertainty. Um, so thank you so much for that testimony. Um, there's so much here to chew on and unpack, I feel like for our listeners. And, um, but I always want to give everyone the opportunity to say cl closing remarks of, you know, anything that is, is burning on your heart or on your mind after, after, in, in relation to any of these things that we shared um, or, or parting words that you just want to leave our listeners or leave it open. I don't know if you, anything comes to mind and if not, that's fine. But. Yeah. Yeah. Something, something pithy and profound. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say something really deep and uh, one line that just sort of, you know, no, you said I've, I've already received so much, but I just wanted to give that opportunity too. If there's anything, yeah well no thank you eric i mean i i i love the i i love watching god at work i you know as a, as a historian it, it is about unpacking stories i i love that you know it was before we we started talking you you talked about you know what michael goheen calls the you know the true history of the whole world <laughs> you know that is a the there there is a uh the, the narrative arc is um that there's a beginning a middle and end of, of his story of history and that a lot of our um what we're trying to do in our time here as individuals is to um find our place in history and so um seeing god unpacking things and connecting things and bringing people together is is um uh, I, I i find a lot of joy in that so i love that until we um uh, that, that you and I have connected in a, in a previous life and that we were going to be speaking today. And uh, before we came on, on the air, found out that we actually knew each other before. So um, that's, that's to me, that's really fun. So being part of history, being part of his story is, is um, it's, it's, it's genuinely fun. Despite being, in, so, so maybe, I'll, maybe I'll end with this because I am teaching an, um, a history of nursing course at the moment. I've never taught uh, history of nursing, which includes teaching about the pandemic, the 1918 pandemic, <laughs> to a group that's in the middle of a pandemic. And I've, and I've said to them, uh, you are, we are, but I'd say to my students, you are living through a, um, a world-changing event right now. And, and there will be historians 30, 50 years from now who are going to be very interested in knowing what it was like to be a first or second or third year student um, nursing student in this case in the middle of, um, of a pandemic. And so um, 
This is, uh, I've wondered as a historian, I've wondered what it's like to live through these world events. So here we are, we're living through, we're, we're, we're in the middle of it. We're create, we're, people are gonna remember this moment. This is this, this moment in history, this COVID period is gonna be talked about, you know, 100, 200 years from now. So let's make it count. Well, I don't want to. Um, I know Calvinists don't don't like to. Uh, what's the word? Have to have too much praise. But I will say that is pithy and profound. So I I, I applaud you and and I mean it. I I, I really appreciate you uh, you sharing your heart, your story, um, but then leaving those really helpful and very encouraging words with us because this this is not easy, is it? Uh, like you said, right off the bat, this is such a difficult time. And so we need all the encouragement we can get. And so I, I appreciate that reminder as well. Um, yeah. So Sonia, thank you so much for sharing your time, sharing your heart, sharing your, a bit of your life with us. Um, yeah, it's been great to reconnect, as you said. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I wish you all the best and thank you. Thank you too, Eric. This has been great. Thanks for, um, uh, thanks for taking this on. It's been fun. Lay down all your burdens, brother, lay them on the ground. There is no more reason to be bearing them around. On the show today, you heard Sonia Gritma. Sonia is a former nurse, vice provost, leadership and graduate studies, and dean of global at Trinity Western University, whose story is illuminated by the gospel story that is the story of Jesus Christ. For all your other One Life curation needs, including events, links, and more information about the five callings, visit crconelife.ca. And hey, thanks for listening. Share.